uh, we are in nearing, I would say, the halfway point of this second book of Kings. And uh, for a moment uh, here as we navigate chapter 12, we're going to get a slight reprieve from all of that gory stuff we've been wading through. Uh, we're not going to deal with quite as much uh, blood and violence and war here, um, but I want you to just don't let that fool you. Um, because just because there's not as much violence that happens in this particular chapter doesn't mean it's not as tragic. Actually, in some ways, I think this account is even more upsetting. Because, not because it's filled with high body counts and lots of uh, sort of action and stuff like that and tragedy in that way. But it's, it's tragic in another sense because we get to see this sort of slow burn of hope that is totally crushed and demolished in a way. Last time, if you remember, we saw the events which led to this little boy named Joash being saved from the grip of his grandmother and being allowed to be coronated king of Judah. That was the events of chapter 11. Little Joash is rescued by his aunt and uncle, Aunt Jehosheba and Uncle Jehoiada. They save him. They rescue him from that grandmother who wants to just kill all of the royal seed. And they, in a way, this aunt and uncle, they become, the, we could say, the substitute parents for little Joash. And they begin mentoring him. They begin uh, leading him in the ways of the Lord. And that's what we see right here, right away, in the beginning of chapter 12. As the priest Jehoiada says in verse, 12, verse number 2. Oh, by the way, just if you have a different translation, notice, you might notice it says Jehoash. It's the same guy. It's Joash and Jehoash. Two different spellings. I'm probably going to just go through it as Joash because that's what it is in my notes. But don't let that uh, throw you off. Um, but in verse number two, and Joash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord all his days wherein Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. He's being taught. He's being ministered to by this priest in the ways of Yahweh. Those old scrolls perhaps are, are found and reopened and he's being taught, instructed these things. By the way, file away that word instructed, if you will, in verse number two. It's a very fascinating word. We're going to get to it near the end of the sermon. Basically what it means is to, it can also, it means to teach and it means to instruct, yes. But there's another meaning that I think is really powerful that we're going to see here, which it can also mean to throw or to cast. And that's essentially what Jehoiada is doing. He is casting the seeds of God's word to this young king. Remember, he comes to the throne when he was yet seven years old. So he needed a mentor. He needed this one who is in his ear. And that's essentially what Jehoiada is. He is the voice in Joash's ear telling him of the ways of David, of the ways of Yahweh. And he listened for the most part. As we notice in verse 3, he didn't do entirely everything. The high places were still there. But we have to get this sense of Joash's reign. It's a, it's a reign of optimism. It's a reign of hope. It's a reign that has all these, it is, it's teeming with, with potential and possibility. This idea that the, the line of David has not just been preserved, it's being brought back into power. And not only is the line of David preserved and brought back into power, but God's law is finding its way back into the hearts of the people. You can sense this rush of feeling and hope and faith coming back into the kingdom of Judah. And early on, that's what he acts upon. As we notice in verse number four, 
He decides to start taking collections, so to speak, and, and because he deems it time, perhaps I have no doubt that it's, it's from the influence of Jehoiada, it's time to focus on the house of the Lord, and as he says there, to repair the breaches. And so Jehoash, verse 4, said to the priests, all the money of the, de- of the uh, all of the dedicated things that is brought into the house of the Lord, even the money of everyone that passeth the account, the money that every man is set at, and all the money that cometh into any man's heart to bring it to the house of the Lord, let the priests take it to them, every man of his acquaintance, and let them repair the breaches of the house, wheresoever any breach shall be found. The house of the Lord, that temple that sat at the heart of all Israelite life has become this dilapidated mess. It's been neglected. It's, I, just, I just get this picture in my head. Cobwebs are everywhere. There's, there's papers and, and furniture lying everywhere. It's just become a mess. That magnificent structure that we read about a long time ago where Solomon was constructing this thing with such meticulous care and majesty has become this shabby mess of a house. Such that it is necessary not to just fix a few odds and ends, but as he notices, as he says here, repair the breaches. And very easily we might say that's a very good representation of who Judah is at this point. It's a very obvious parallel to say that what the temple looks like is what the hearts of the people of Judah look like. They don't have much care for the things of Yahweh. And just as the temple had fallen into disrepair, so had the people. They had forgotten the Lord. They had discarded his word, disregarded the things that he had told them to do. And yet now we get this sense of feeling that under the tutelage of Jehoiada, the priest, he's leading the people through the arm of the king back into that good favor of the Lord. And it starts right here by repairing the breaches that are in the house of the Lord. It's a moment of tremendous opportunity. And yet, if you want further proof again of just what the state of Judah's hearts were like, If you want an accurate picture of what their spiritual status really looked like, again, we can just notice how long it took for these priests to get off of their hands and start doing stuff. Verse 6, but it was so that in the 3 and 20th year of King Joash, the priests had not repaired the breaches of the house. (laughs) Two whole decades go by. Money's collected, money is put in this fund or what have you. There's, there's things happening. There's, there's finances being recovered and taken. And for 23 years, there's this persistent answer of we're just working on it. <laughs> yeah, it I, wonder, I, I wonder what these priests were doing for 23 years. <laughs> I can't imagine it was just 23 years of gathering materials and supplies. Some, some have speculated that perhaps these priests were of such a shambled mess to themselves that they were actually embezzling and laundering this money and, and living off of it themselves. And that's not in the text. It's not there here. But what, what we do get, what we do sort of glean from this, as the historian tells us, is that these priests are incredibly lazy. Why, how else can you explain 23 years of just inaction? 
It tells us exactly what the state of Israel is like. It tells us exactly what the hearts of the people of God are like. They don't have much of a way of of earnestness or urgency for the things of the Lord. They're kind of indifferent and dispassionate towards Yahweh's words and ways. And it's evidenced by these priests. And that's when Joash decides to make this decision. He changes how everything is going to be collected. He cuts out the middleman and he says, let's give it directly to the contractors. Notice verse number seven. Then King Joash called for Jehoiada the priest and other priests and said unto them, why repair ye not the breaches of the house? What's, what's going on? What's taking so long? Now therefore receive no more money of your acquaintance, but deliver it for the breaches of the house. And the priest consented to receive no more money of the people, neither to repair the breaches of the house. But Jehoiada the priest took a chest and bored a hole in the lid of it and set it beside the altar on the right side as one cometh into the house of the Lord. And the priest that kept the door put therein all the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. And it was so when they saw that there was much money in the chest that the king's scribe and the high priest came up and they put it in bags and told the money that was found in the house of the Lord. And they gave the money, being told, into the hands of them that did the work, that had the oversight of the house of the Lord. And they laid it out to the carpenters and the builders and wrought upon the house of the Lord. And to masons and hewers of stone and to buy timber and hewed stone to repair the breaches of the house of the Lord. And for all that was laid out for the house to repair it. (laughs) So essentially that's what they set up basically a tithing box in the back of the, of the temple for people to come in and, and give whatever the, the, whatever the Lord laid upon their hearts, whatever their tithes were. And they collected it. Instead of changing hands a couple times, they went straight from there, straight from the collection box, straight to the contractors. <laughs> There's no more middleman. Joash was kind of tired with dealing with all these middlemen, and he gave it directly to them. And it's an interesting thing to note that he does this. And I think, again, it, it sort of leans into this idea that the historian is trying to get us to distrust these priests in a little bit. Because they couldn't be uh, trusted to handle these monies faithfully. And yet, notice verse 15, because he contrasts that with these contractors. Notice it says, moreover, they reckoned not with the men, that is, with the workmen of the house... And to whose hands they deliver the money to be bestowed on workmen, for they dealt faithfully. You know, the contractors, they are upright, upstanding, trustworthy men, whereas the priests, they're not. We have to, we have to sidestep them because, because these guys can be trusted and the priests can't. You can see the state of Israelites, of Israel's spiritual standing here, where contractors are more trusted than the clergy. It's a sad state of affairs, I think, as we see what Israel has become, what Judah has become. And so there's this great, though, as we see here, this, these, this first half of this chapter is this, we have to just step back. Again, step back and put yourself in the shoes of the people You see this great, wonderful restoration process happen to the Lord's house. You see a king who comes from the lineage of promise sit on the throne. And he's young and he's he's vibrant and he has this teacher who's teaching him. And he is doing things according to the book of the law. There's much optimism and hope and potential. And there's excitement in in the hearts of the people of Judah. And I think the historian wants us to see that. 
He wants us to be excited along with the people here. Yes, there's some issues with the priesthood. Yes, they need to get some things right. They need to get some things straightened out. There's this idea, I think, here that Jehoiada would be the one to do that. But they're working on it. They're, they're, They're working on these things. And then suddenly all of that changes. Look at verse 17. Then Haziel, remember that guy from a couple chapters ago? He shows up again, king of Syria, and he went up and fought against Gath and took it. And Haziel set his face to go up to Jerusalem. And Joash, king of Judah, took all the hallowed things that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, his fathers, kings of Judah, had dedicated and his own hallowed things and all the gold that was found in the treasures of the house of the Lord and in the king's house. And sent it unto Haziel, king of Syria. And he went away from Jerusalem. So, notice. The Syrian army is invading. They've just sacked Gath. They've taken it. And now they've set their eyes straight on Jerusalem. They're on a war path for battle, so to speak. And their hearts are set on taking the kingdom of God. That's why they're going to Jerusalem. And Joash gets word of this. This king who is perhaps a little bit older, perhaps he's you know, in his mid-20s, early 30s or so. We, we don't know how old he is at this particular juncture. But he's a little bit older. He makes this decision to, instead of, instead of engaging in outright war again, what does he do? He, he decides to go into the temple treasury and, and, and liquidate all the reserves, all the savings of the house of the Lord. And give it as a bribe to uh, say, hey, Hazel, let's, let's avoid battle. No more bloodshed. No more conflict. Just take the money and go. He bribes Syria off from further battle. And it works. It says at the end, and he went away from Jerusalem. I guess money talks, so to speak, but we can look at this from one standpoint, that this is some pretty shrewd political policy by Joash, yes. But I think actually what I think the historian wants us to notice here is just the the sheer measure of distrust on Joash's part. Instead of trusting in Yahweh, instead of putting his confidence in this Lord that he had been taught about, that he had been mentored about, what does he do? He puts his trust in his own means, writes a cashier's check to avoid battle. That's what he's literally doing. He's trusting in his own wits and wisdom to get out of a predicament. Faith isn't on display. It's what can I do myself to get out of this Difficult situation. He's trusting in his own means. He's putting himself as the center of the one who would deliver his people. Instead of trusting in the deliverer himself. Yahweh. This by all accounts of course. Is a very stark shift from earlier. This Joash who is liquidating the temple uh, money accounts of all of their monies in order to pay off an enemy is far removed from this young Joash at the earlier part of the chapter who was so gung-ho about the things of the Lord and that he was doing everything he could to build up the people's excitement for the house of Yahweh. All that optimism is gone. And actually things don't get any better. And in fact... The historian condenses the rest of his reign to just these last three verses with a brief note of how he, his demise was utterly horrific. He was assassinated. Look at verse 19. And the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did 
Are they not written in the books of the kings of the of book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And his servants arose and made a conspiracy and slew Joash in the house of Milo, which goeth down to Silla. For Josachar, the son of Shimeath, and Jehozabad, the son of Shomer, his servants smote him and he died, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. And Amaziah, his son, reigned in his stead. And that's it. Joash, his story is done. And I think the historian does this very stark shift in how the narrative goes to sort of just leave us thinking, what in the world happened? Because <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm reading this over and over again. I can't help but feel a little bit disappointed. Joash, what, did, what, what happened, man? What did you do? There was so much potential surrounding you. There was so much promise that you had. You had all of the people of God excited for the work of God to continue in the city of God. And then it all just kind of ended pitifully. This is where the chronicler really helps us. Go with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 24. I don't often do a parallel here, but I think here it is incredibly enlightening. He gives us a slightly more information on this demise of Joash, this tragedy that befalls this young and promising king. And it starts right away, I think, in how he tells us about how Jehoiada was ministering to him. Second Chronicles 24, look at verse 2, and it says, And Joash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. There's a qualifier there. This devotion that he had to the things of the Lord, to the things of Yahweh, to the book of the law, and all those things that he knows he's supposed to do, it was qualified by this persistent sort of presence and influence of the priest Jehoiada, with this insinuation being that as long as this, this, this king is dependent on him and he's dependent on this guidance, things are good. You can sense this sort of, he's leaning on everything that Jehoiada says. Even if perhaps he doesn't necessarily believe it himself. He's listening to the things that Jehoiada is telling him as long as he was alive. But notice, go down to verse 15. Notice what happens when he's not, allow, or not alive anymore, not around. His voice couldn't be leaned on for question and confusion and for counsel. When Jehoiada is gone, notice who fills the void in Joash's mind and heart and soul. Notice verse 15. But Jehoiada waxed old. And was full of days when he died, and 130 years old when he was died. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings, because he had done good in Israel, both toward God and toward his house. Now after the death of Jehoiada came the princes of Judah, and made obeisance to the king, that the king hearkened unto them. Notice that phrase. And they left the house of the Lord, of God, Lord God of their fathers, and served groves and idols and wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this their trespass. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them again unto the Lord. And they testified against them, but they would not give ear. Notice how tragic. Old age takes Jehoiada out of the way, off the scene. And along with Jehoiada, there's a sense that so too does the voice of Yahweh sort of leave the throne. And rather than Joash listening to what his mentor is saying, notice who he's listening to. The princes of Judah, verse number 17. Then he hearkened unto them. 
You can sense this, this turn, this, this shift in who he's listening to, who he's taking advice from, who he's being counseled by. And what does their influence result in? Horrible worship, idolatry, iniquity, infidelity, those things that so define the people of God and their wickedness are all drummed back up again, are all brought back up to the surface. And again, it's, it's a disheartening scene because you can see that God has not given up on him. He's sending him prophets. <laughs> He's sending him preachers. Perhaps these are guys who are coming out of the old school of Elisha and Elijah. And they're coming onto the scene and preaching to them. Guys, turn. Guys, turn back to Yahweh. And he even sends them, verse number 20, one whose name was Zechariah. Not the Zechariah from later in the Old Testament. A different Zechariah. But he says in verse 20, the spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, which stood above the people and said unto them, thus saith God, why transgress ye the commandments of the Lord? That ye cannot prosper because ye have forsaken the Lord. He hath also forsaken you. This is the heart of God for his people. He's not giving up on them. Even after how many ages it's been that they've sort of neglected him and given up on Yahweh. He is still yearning for his people. That's what these prophets represent. That's what Zechariah here represents. Even as God's people do an about face on God's word, what does he do? He reaches out to bring them back. And what do they do? They're slapping away that heat, that reach. They're slapping away the people that would have uh, them turn back to the things of the Lord. They dismiss these prophets. And in fact, in verse number 21, they have Zechariah murdered. And they conspired against him, that is Zechariah, and stoned him with stones in, at the commandment of the king in the court of the house of the Lord. And that's an interesting thing to note. In the house of the king... That's where he's stoned. Who's king? Joash. Who is Zechariah? The son of Jehoiada. This is how far he's fallen. He's now murdering the son of the guy who mentored him. It's a fall from grace. It's a fall from tremendous heights of promise and potential and hope. And we ought to be devastated. Because that's, again, here, just as the historian does, the chronicler takes us from that moment. He says, sort of, we could say, this is where things go south. Invasion, bribery, betrayal, assassination, and then Joash is done. All of that optimism is done. It's now disappointment and disaster. With his tombstone, perhaps, I imagine reading what might have been. That's what's on Joash's tombstone. That's the epitaph that ends his life. Oh, what could have been. And there's, when I, when I step back and look at these two chapters, first, 2 Kings 12 and 2 Chronicles 24, there's really two points of application that I would like to make, and I've saved them for the end because there's one that I think is the one that stood out to me. And I'm not going to choose. I'm going to give you both of them. <laughs> I think the very obvious one, at least to me, is that Joash, I think, shows us, number one, why we are so desperate for a true and better king. One who never disappoints. Again, what we looked at last week, Joash is in the line of David. It's the lineage of promise. The line that, yes, was, was promised to deliver the Messiah to the nations. 
And he kind of fritters away that promise and fizzles out, just like the rest of them. He continues that long line of of kings rising and then making a very sudden and drastic and tragic fall. And he shows us, I think, desperately why we need one who doesn't fizzle out. We need a king who doesn't fail, who doesn't forget his words, but who is faithful forever. In a way, I think that's why Joash and his disaster shows us, and I think it drives us to rejoice in the fact that we can worship, and yes, we have worshipped here this morning, King Jesus. He's the king who never fails. All over the Psalms, you can, you can, there's like, I think, I don't know, 20 some odd instances of this, maybe that's a higher or lower number, uh, of, of the Psalms extolling and exalting our guys to look at the fact that this king who's going to be enthroned, he's a king forever. His reign has, is unending. He doesn't disappoint like Joash. He doesn't bring up our hope and optimism only to fail and not live up to his words. This King Jesus is faithful to his word forever. And when he promises, he delivers on. He doesn't just promise hope. He is hope incarnate. He delivers it to us by the power of his word and by the sacrifice of his body on the tree. That's what he does for each and every one of us. He is the king who never disappoints and always succeeds. We have a true and better Joash in King Jesus. That's application number one. And I think it's very true from this particular passage. But I think what stood out to me in another sort of, in another sort of light is just how Joash's whole story. When you compare chapter 12 here and chapter 24 of Chronicles. To me, I just get this sense that what he's shows us is sort of this of someone you know growing up in something and with something without ever personally owning or believing in that thing how many times have you heard this story a child he he goes to church and he makes a profession of faith at a really young age and he begins thriving, he begins flourishing. He's, he's doing all the things, he's learning all the verses, he's go, winning all the awards and going to all the camps and, and doing all the things good church kids should do. And when he's looked at, he's looked at as the kid who has all of the promise and the potential and the hope and, and the, the amazing ability to do the things that we know we think God wants to do. He could change the world. And then they go, he goes to college and he starts listening to other voices and other ideas. And now they're vastly removed from anything Christian. They don't want anything to do with Jesus, nothing to do with the Bible, nothing to do with the church or any of that stuff. And all of that hope that we once had in that little boy who made a profession of faith at a really young age is now gone. And we think sort of like the story of Joash, man, what might have been. Man, that kid, he could have really done something. Man, she really could have done something. I think, at least in my experience, that really is the tale as old as time, so to speak. Of the tragic turns of young people turning away from the things that they've been taught from a young age. And yet, as often as we hear it, I don't think it makes it any less sad or tragic And in fact, I think Jesus himself had something to say about this. 
Go with me really quick to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. I think, to me, this is the true resonance of the story of Joash. Remember when I told you to file away that word instruct? And it means to throw, it means to cast. I think in a way, what we see in Joash is precisely what we have here described by Jesus in the parable of the sower. Notice Matthew chapter 13, look at verse 5. He's in the middle of telling this story about the sower who's sowing seeds in the fields. And he says, verse number 5, Some of the seeds fell upon stony places, where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up, because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. Joash is like that. He's this thorny, rocky ground that here Jesus describes where something is good and it springs up and has life and hope and potential and optimism and then it's choked and it dies because of thorns, because of not much roots. There's not much uh, solid ground upon which it's standing, upon which it's growing. And Jesus explains that he's very clearly talking about those later on in the same chapter. He talks about how this is very clearly meant to, to portray those who listen to the word and they don't really make it theirs. I think that's Joash. He listened to the priest for so long. He had the words of the Lord, if you'll forgive the, the image, thrown at him like a sower throwing seed, instructing him, casting the words and the truths of God into his heart and soul. And it's almost as if it fell onto him and it didn't take root. Because his heart was rocky, his heart was stony. And yet then when he listened to the other voices, they functioned like thorns to choke out whatever promise and hope that he represented. That, I think, is the tragedy of Joash. And it makes, me, it makes me almost shudder. Because it makes me think that there's one, it's one thing to listen to the words of God. And praise the Lord that you're here this morning. Listen to the words, listening to the words of God. Hope you're, hopefully you're listening. It's another thing entirely to walk out of those doors and make this word your heart and your life. And I think that's why this story for me hits so close to home for me, both as a pastor and as a parent. As a pastor, I'll just confess to you, I can only take you so far. I wish I could be the Holy Spirit. That's not really in my job description. (laughs) There's someone way better at that than me. All I can do is be faithful with all that I am and I pray to all the time and be faithful in presenting this word like the sower, like Jehoiada and throw it to you, cast it onto your hearts and souls and minds. I can't force you to believe it. I can't force you to put into practice what this word says. I wish that I could sometimes. And maybe you wish that too. But again, that's, that's the Spirit's job. I've been tasked 
to explain this word in order to equip you to live for him in whatever sphere of life he has called you. And that's different for everyone. But the, the, the sometimes, yes, frustrating reality is that ultimately your devotion and your dedication is something with which you have to wrestle with on your own. Because a life of loyal, passionate, self-sacrificial faith lived to the glory of God. It's not necessarily taught. It's something that's caught. When the preaching of the word and the truths of the word capture our souls, capture our hearts, capture our minds with this captivating view of God's grace and his glory in the person and work of Christ. When that captures you, boy, you're on fire. I can't teach you that all I can do is be faithful in presenting you the words which bring that to bear and this also makes me shudder as a parent because this story of Joash sobers me up to this reality that I have children over whom their souls are not really in my authority that kind of that kind of scares me It makes me want to be very focused on how I am parenting. And and it makes me realize all the ways that I fail and fail to present to them the truth of hope and grace and love to them. And I want to present the the hope and the truth and grace and love of God to them. Because I know that a life of loyal, passionate, self-sacrificial faith is not only not taught, it's not inherited. Just because mommy and daddy did doesn't mean they will too. You can't inherit saving faith just because you're part of this lineage of church-going people. Your standing before God is not up to what your parents believed. It's up to you. And what you believe about the good news of God's forgiveness and his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Period. The end. And I can teach you the truths of that. I can try and convince you of it. Both having saving faith and living faithfully. I can preach till I'm blue in the face. (laughs) But ultimately as you walk out of that door. It's up to you. Just as Joash here. He made a decision. To start listening to other voices. And those voices choked the faith that he had. Or thought he had. And it leads me to ask this question, and then I'm done, or a couple of questions. And truly ask yourself, I'm going to ask myself, do I really believe what I say I believe? Do I really believe this? Do I, do I believe this because I've been taught this and this is what we believe? Or do I believe this because I believe this? Is this belief mine or someone else's? Is my faith in just in my head? Or has it reached down into all the tendrils of my heart and is now seeping out into my life? Do you really believe? It doesn't matter what your age is. And yes, we could gear this to quote-unquote young people. And yes, I would say definitely If you're in high school or nearing the age of college and you're going off to listen to other voices, do you know what you believe? My heart is for you. 
Because how you answer those questions will determine if your life will have an epitaph of what could have been. Or as Jesus says in Matthew 13, verse 23, that's faithful and fruit-bearing. Matthew 13, 23, how does he sum it up? But he that receives seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some an hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. That, I think, is the ultimate ending of this story, this narrative of Joash. He brings us to that point where we have to ask ourselves, do I believe this? And do I believe it to the point where I'm willing to live like it? My heart is just that. Like Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded of it. He was convicted of that. He had such a strong conviction of the things that he was preaching and teaching. And he says, I know it. That's why he could endure shipwreck and beating and slander and mockery and all of those things. Because he knew what he believed. For him, the thorns, they couldn't really do anything to him. Because he knew who he was believing in. That's my heart, but I'll tell you even more wonderfully, that's God's heart for each and every one of you this morning. That you would know what you believe. And that you would bank on it, that you would live on it, that you would stand on it in all of the days of your life. Days that seem dreary, days that seem difficult, days that seem so hopeful and optimistic and successful. His heart for you, each and every one of you here this morning, is that you would know and believe in your heart of hearts that he's the one behind it all. Do you know what you believe this morning? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.